Today, we're talking about how we can have more widely shared prosperity without destroying the environment. Currently, our economic system is leading to extreme concentration of wealth, limiting social mobility, and severely damaging our environment. Wealth is so concentrated, the top 1% owns more wealth than 90% of the rest of us combined, and their wealth is growing rapidly. Our guest today argues that many of our crises, such as income inequality, the opioid epidemic, the corruption of our democracy, and climate change, actually have their origin in the dangerous rerouting of money away from the common good to the wealthiest among us. What makes it easier for the wealthy to get more and harder for working people to get ahead? What can we do to democratize our economy and bring about more widespread prosperity? Our guest today has a deep understanding of how our economy works and how it might be transformed. Marjorie Kelly is Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, a nonprofit working to catalyze a democratic economy. She is also the co-founder and for 20 years, president of Business Ethics Magazine. Ms. Kelly just published a new book called Wealth Supremacy, where she explains how the financial system works and shows us the pathways to a more democratic economy. She highlights economic models already in place that we can build on, such as community land trusts, municipal electric utilities, and publicly owned banks. I am absolutely thrilled to bring to you today Marjorie Kelly, who I've been following for many, many years. I'm so excited to meet you, Marjorie. Welcome to All Together Now. Well, Eleanor, thanks for having me. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I'm actually doing the Solution Summit next month, as you know, addressing four of our crises on climate, democracy, health, and the economy. And I was so excited to read your new book because you do kind of get at some of the root causes of what's the story behind the story. What's causing all of these like multiple crises to be cascading in at once? And you point to wealth supremacy as a hidden force driving many of our crises. Can you explain to our listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of reading your important book, but what is wealth supremacy? Yes, I, um, I, I've been tracking progressive business and investing for 20, 30 years, Eleanor, and, and, and I've been discouraged at the fact that we're losing ground faster than we're, we're gaining it. There's so many visionary models out there that work, that are proven, and yet we're losing ground. And I, I, I wanted to write a book and say, why? What is it that we're, that we're up against? I mean, we know that there's this big divide between the wealthy and the rest of us, but what we need to see is how the system is in intricate ways designed to benefit the wealthy. And, and the reason is what I call wealth supremacy. We have this deep bias. It's very much like, like, um, like white supremacy or male supremacy. It's a, it's a way of thinking. It's a worldview, and it tells you who matters and who does not matter. It's a, it's a bias. It, it tells us wealthy people matter more than everyone else. They deserve more power. Only wealth holders, capital holders have a vote inside corporations. Workers don't have a vote. We consider that normal. Um, there is a fiduciary duty to, ser to serve investors and labor. If it wants to have a voice for protection, it has to organize one shop at a time, whereas capital is just automatically protected. So there are a variety of ways, important ways, that wealth or capital, as we call it when it's invested, how, how wealth is protected, and the rest of us are not. The rest of us are extracted from. And, and what I try to do, Eleanor, is explain this in ordinary language, you know, so, so the rest of us can kind of get what's actually going on. I love that about your writing. I mean, it's obviously the economic system is 
big and complex. Um, and I love that you do describe things in a way that the average person could understand. Uh, I struggled through my economics classes at Yale. I was actually an <laughs> econ major at Yale, so I'm very sympathetic how well, difficult that text can be. But you bring it so clearly to the, the forefront. I'm so grateful that you did that. And I find it really interesting. You kind of zero in on financialization um, mm -hmm. as the hidden road of our crises. And I, I'd love for you to just talk with our listeners, explain what what do you mean by financialization and, and what's the problem with it? Sure. You know, I think a lot of us on the left, we think the problem is uh, corporations, and certainly that's a manifestation of the problem or we think CEOs are the problem or billionaires are the problem and certainly they you know have some some um, culpability but the, but the real issue is is much bigger than any individual and it is what economists call financialization and, and, and let me start uh, Eleanor by saying that you know when I was a kid back in the 1950s if you took all financial assets, and I mean stocks, bonds, you know, the value of real estate and so on, and you added that up, so these financial assets, that was roughly equal to gross domestic product. Now, GDP, that's the flow of income and spending in an economy. You have a job, you get a paycheck, you spend the money. That's what GDP tracks income and spending. Financial assets are another sphere. We can think of it as a separate sphere kind of hovering above uh, the real economy of, of jobs and spending. Well, financial assets, they used to be equal to GDP. Now they're five times GDP. Eleanor, we don't even have numbers or metrics to track this. And this is the actual real phenomenon that's happening in our economy and that where the power is because that sphere even though it's five times bigger than the real economy we live in it has to grow every quarter every year those assets have to get bigger and bigger and bigger and it means they need to maybe throw labor under the bus throw jobs overseas or turn full-time jobs into part-time jobs you know we have to keep drilling oil because exxon needs to keep its share price growing um, so there are all, and also, you know, the bigger this sphere gets, that's, those are those billionaires, those are those wealthy people, and they can capture government and, and, and bring government uh, to its knees. And so this is financialization. There's too much financial wealth in our society in too few hands. And this is a relatively new phenomenon um, in the recent decades. And it's as big as climate change in its effects. But uh, it remains largely invisible. Yeah, well, the way I think about it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it just seems when I was growing up, people actually produced things. Right. Uh, you had you you manufactured a car, or you published a literally published a book, and um, made things with your hands. So you had kind of the productive economy. And then you have the service economy with people selling pizza or insurance. Um, so it was not so much manufacturing, but it was a real live hands-on service. But what I hear you talking about is this whole financial sector mm -hmm. where it's about the stocks behind the company or the bonds. And then you get into very highly leveraged Mm -hmm. uh, financial instruments that hardly anybody understands and um, it just seems like that's totally disconnected in a way from the real world it's not connected to nature and 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 that sector has been the one that's grown enormously in terms of both money value and mm -hmm. in terms of when you talk about growth of our economy that's a lot of it is in this kind of Wall Street wizard uh, right. sector. Is that well, a, a fair description? Yes, that is a fair description. That is where the energy and the power has gravitated. And while finance has a normal function that can be useful, you know, you want to buy a house, you get a loan, 
and you know that that's pretty normal but it has it has migrated far beyond that i, I it, it so that creating financial wealth or extracting it as i like to say mostly it's extracting financial wealth has become the purpose of the economy and uh, it's like the difference between social drinking and alcoholism you know we've gone way beyond ordinary ordinary finance into this uh uh, I, I want to say kind of perverted form of it. And, you know, an example is private equity. Most of us don't even know what that means. But when you invest in IBM, that's that's a public equity. That's a stock that trades on public stock markets. Anyone can invest in it. Private equity are stocks in companies that only the big guys it's, it's can play in that game. You, you and I, unless you're far more wealthy than I realize, most people cannot play in that in that game. Um, and that's where a lot of the energy in the system has migrated. And, and for example, private equity will take over, uh, it took over Toys R Us and it loaded it with so much debt uh, and then wrote it, private equity then used that debt to write itself a big check, right? So it wasn't productive debt. It wasn't like you're going to take on debt, you're going to improve your website, you're going to, you know, improve your marketing no you're going to take on debt and you're going to give us most of it <laughs> and so what happened it was it drove toys r us into bankruptcy and thirty-three thousand workers lost their jobs now private equity investors made out like bandits so that's mm -hmm. an example of how shifting income from labor to capital that has become the name of the game absolutely and i uh, appreciate your description in your book. You talk about the way things are designed now is, um, you know, for the extraction of wealth. So you have a functioning, I mean, I love Toys R Us. I, that was, I did Christmas shopping for my daughter there. It was fun just walking through the aisle. But to see these people take it over, write themselves a big check, they drive the company in the ground. You say 33,000 people lost their jobs. The company's gone. That is just, in my view, a very irresponsible and sick way to run a company. And yet the people who did it made out like bandits and they're, you know, catapulting themselves in the top 1%. So I, uh, I love your description, both that it's, irresponsible consumption is being driven by the the corporate drive to maximize profits that that's part of what's destroying our environment uh, and causing us to lose some of these jobs and then the flip side of it is that we can redesign things in a way and change the incentives in a way so it's it's not designed for the extraction of wealth taking the money out of the company taking the mm -hmm. whatever the gold out of the earth um taking the jobs away from the working people but we can design it so the focus is on the flourishing of life and that's the, right you know that's respect right. for nature and respect for working people respect for the communities we live in and talk more about how you see that shift could possibly happen yeah, yeah. So l let me start by talking about uh, nature and how this current design works against nature. I mean, we know ExxonMobil is kind of the bad guy, right? What we don't talk about is the fact that ExxonMobil is following the normal rules of corporate governance, which says that company exists to maximize returns for its shareholders. It has a fiduciary duty to maximize that those gains. And so what happened... Fossil fuel companies last year gained 60% in the stock market. And this was at the same time that California was burning, Canada was burning, uh, New York City flashed flooding. So there's this odd disconnect, Eleanor, between what the rules say, which is maximize returns to shareholders. That's what's taught in business schools, right? This is not this is not a rogue company doing this. This is the fundamental uh, design of the system. So that that's one example. So how would you redesign that? Well, one of the things that you need to do in a democratic economy and at the democracy collaborative, that's that's what we call it. We call the system that we need is a democratic economy, so we can have a fully democratic 
society. One of the things you need is debt forgiveness, right? Debt is an asset. If you're a wealthy person, uh, you you hold a lot of debt. We call them bonds, or it might be bank debt. You know, there's a variety of ways that it's that it's uh, held as an asset. Uh, but so every uh, every dollar held by one person as an asset is is an obligation by someone else, and sometimes that obligation is too too onerous. Um, and uh, an example of how to, how to get beyond excess debt is debt for nature swaps. And this happened in um, Belize, for example. They $500 million of debt was um, uh, reduced. So what happened there were private investors took part. It was Nature Conservancy that uh, that organized this. And, um, uh, and so about half of that debt was forgiven, right? So $500 million of debt became $250 million. And, and what was forgiven, in return, Belize said, we will invest millions each year in our in our ecosystem. We will improve um, the shoreline where coral grows and, where, and where, where grasses grow, the fishes feed. So they're going to improve their whole ecosystem uh, of the shoreline in return for this debt forgiveness. So that, that's an example of how of how we can have we can get rid of some of this excess financial wealth, which is too onerous. And at the same time, we can turn that toward toward a positive good. And and so let me give you a, a, another example. And that is... If okay. I can jump in here, yeah. Yes, uh, I, just to kind of bring this to our listeners and kind of what their life experience is, that the impact of this extractive economy that we have and the incentives as they're designed is that the average person is getting really squeezed um, uh, on two ends. They're Mm -hmm. squeezed on the low income end and that's with low wage jobs. It's uncertain jobs. It's part-time jobs. It's the gig economy. So all that uncertainty low income, you're kind of struggling to pay the rent every month, put food on the table. Mm -hmm. So you're squeezed on that side. And then how a lot of people cope with the uh, having not enough money to pay the bills every month is they put stuff on their credit card, you end up with credit card debt, and then you get the credit card companies charging 20% huge uh, expensive costs there, as well as if you've got debt from school loans, if you have debts from buying a car, or if you're fortunate enough to own a mortgage uh, to have a home, you've got you're carrying a heavy debt burden from multiple sources, and you're not earning enough money to. In most cases, you're not earning enough money to pay all your bills every month in full. So. You know, the majority of people in the country right now are feeling very stressed financially. And it bothers me that so many people blame themselves that, you know, I'm not smart enough. I don't work enough. I don't save enough. But in some of that may be true in some instances, but that we've got a system that's designed to extract wealth out of people at every point along the way uh, you know uh, and that they're getting hammered and they're running faster and faster but they can't seem to get ahead and what i love about your book is you're describing some of the uh the context in which our individual struggles for financial security are being hampered it's like we've got two shackles on our legs when we're trying to run and earn the money so i just wanted you to kind of bring it home for our listeners that that was my takeaway from your book you're kind of explaining why so many of us are have been struggling financially eleanor what you have just described is so beautiful yes you really got the message of the book i mean i call it the war on workers uh you know that we we don't even think of it as a unified phenomenon but jobs sent overseas uh, in manufacturing jobs sent overseas in the 80s, where full-time jobs turned into part-time and contingent and subcontract work. I mean, half the people at Google don't even work for Google. They're subcontractors. 
right? The people who are unloading trucks at Walmart don't work for Walmart. They work for, they're subcontracted to a trekking company and they actually work for a temp agency. So it's very hard to organize workers when you have this kind of disaggregation of work happening. So corporations have used every possible way to, to disempower workers and reduce income to labor so that they can increase income to capital. That's and, and that's what the rules of the game tell them they're supposed to do. Um, and so you're right. And we, you're right. We do blame ourselves. I mean, even our language conveys this notion of wealth supremacy and capital bias. I mean, you know, deadbeats, right? If you can't pay your bills, you're considered a deadbeat. Well, if you can't pay your bills, it may be because capital you know, private equity shut down your firm. <laughs> or it may be because your wife got sick and you can't afford medical bills. You know, most of the people, a big majority of the people that go into debt in this country are driven into debt by uh, some kind of health problem. And then they can't work so much to get the income. They have higher bills. Boom, they end up in bankruptcy. That's exactly right. And, and you know, and capital works in the background in all these nefarious ways. You know, it's hard to see exactly what's going on. But it is it is exactly what's going on. Uh, it, capital is extracting from from labor and leaving us with debt, leaving us laden with debt. And then we blame ourselves. We blame we blame the victim. Right. It's like a musical chair game where they're removing the chairs. Right. The good jobs are, are gone. And yet we're, we're and we feel it's always they say, well, you should be you should seek training. Well, t- you know, if the jobs are gone, training is not is not going to do it. So uh, and so, yeah, two out of three Americans, Eleanor, don't even have a thousand dollars in an emergency. A thousand dollars. I mean, you know, your kid needs a band uniform. Your car breaks down. You know, you need a new air conditioner whatever. I mean, a thousand dollars. That's a tiny, tiny bit of security. And two out of three Americans don't have it. We don't. We do not have financial security. And meanwhile, you know, the I'm wealthy- so glad you said that because I, I, when I was doing research into the data on the economy to figure out where's the problem and how do we shift things, I was absolutely stunned to learn that it is the majority experience as an American right now that you are struggling financially. It's not like the bottom 10% poor. It's not Mm -hmm. even the bottom third who are kind of poor or maybe on the edge of poor. We're talking what used to be the solid middle class. You're talking about two thirds of the people in the United States are struggling financially. They don't have a thousand dollar buffer. I've had car problems. I've got a 20 year old car but uh i love it by the way it works great and but uh occasionally if you ha- you need things done i took it in the other day it was like twelve hundred dollars to fix something it's either oh. that or buy another car twelve hundred dollars you're saying two-thirds you know two-thirds of americans couldn't afford that thousand dollar payment and they might lose their job as a result um I, I, so it's 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 a terrifying situation, and we need to, and yet we're told we should blame the immigrants. The immigrants are the problem. Well, no, the immigrants are not are not the problem. The problem is a, is capital extraction, is wealth supremacy, this this bias that's built into our system. I mean, you uh, at the Democracy Collaborative, we we um, had some research done by international economists looking at financialization and one of the things that they said very clearly is the finance sector is the locus where inequality is generated and that was such a a, a profound statement from economists finance is what is creating inequality we don't hear this in the news enough eleanor this is why i'm really glad that you have me on and that we're talking about this because that isn't that isn't what is commonly understood in our in our economy because you know we have this wealth bias we think that wealthy people are great and people look at their at their investment portfolios and it looks like that money just falls out of the sky that there's no there are no consequences uh to it but there are there are tremendous consequences absolutely well and you mentioned the fossil fuel companies and by the way i know they're like the latest um 
character embodiment of of evil but i will say one thing about the fossil fuel companies that i would like to bring into the conversation and not to be misunderstood but looking historically over the past 150 years it was the fossil fuel companies with the coal and the oil and the gas that enabled industrialization and cars and airplanes and things that uh, trains things that we kind of have really improved our quality of life in many ways that they did enable that it did have a role to play mm -hmm. so i want to give credit where credit is due and at the same time there right now we now know which we didn't a long time ago we now know that the greenhouse gases emitted when they're burning the coal oil or gas is what's causing global warming and global weirding with this crazy climate catastrophes all over the place and we now know we need to stop it and they know now and they're not stopping in fact they're undermining all the efforts out there to try and stop the greenhouse gas emissions but i heard al gore our former vice president speak the other day and and he said yes you know fossil fuel companies need to be held accountable remember they are responding to the incentives that are set up for them and those incentives are what you're talking about about that you know profit maximize every quarter that you can no matter like who loses a job or what planet gets destroyed in the process they're trying to make that quarterly report show that increase in there mm -hmm. and we uh, uh have not yet changed the policy where we the american taxpayers are subsidizing these extremely wealthy companies <laughs> we're paying the money to do what they're doing and if we would just remove the subsidies and have a level playing field, renewable energies would be way ahead of where they are now because now, in many cases, wind energy, solar power is actually cheaper than the fossil fuels. So anyway, I just want to make that comment about the fossil fuel industry. That's good. Yeah, I think that's very good. Yeah, so I think what we're talking about Eleanor, is we need a new paradigm for the economy, really. You know, one of the things I say is society long ago democratized government. We've never democratized the economy. We've never democratized really the property regime, who owns things, who controls things, who has who has the financial assets. So how, how do you democratize that? And that that's something that uh, that I talk about in the book and the democracy collaborative. Uh, talks a lot about, and I think the most vivid way to see it is uh, is in the communities where we live. We, we've articulated a form of economic development we call community wealth building. Let's build the wealth of our communities, not just the wealth of a few individuals. Let's transform communities by them having control of their own assets, and we're going to keep wealth local, and we're going to keep it circulating. We helped design uh, and start the Evergreen Co-ops in Cleveland, a, a network of three uh, worker-owned companies. There's more than three now. And um, a, a large commercial laundry, for example, is completely owned by its workers, and it serves big anchors like Cleveland Clinic, places that are, are not going to get up and leave the community like a corporation would. And uh, so this is a, a laundry that employs several hundred people, many of them former, formerly incarcerated. And uh, in, in recent years, they've gotten profit sharing of uh, $8,000 one year, $11,000 another year. I mean, if you're not extracting all this wealth for absentee uh, big capital, you, there's more to go around for workers. And, uh, and another worker-owned firm that I love to talk about is Recology in the Bay Area. This is a, a billion-dollar company in, in revenue. It, it picks wow. up waste, waste and recycling all up and down the West Coast, including in San Francisco. It's 100% owned by its workers. And a garbage truck driver there makes $100,000 a year. Again, because they're not taking money out and giving it to shareholders. There's, there's more to go around 
for workers. We can have more worker-owned firms. We can have community-owned water and electricity. I mean, we can begin to take control uh, of our economy. Maine is having a vote uh, right about now to say, should we take uh, electric power back from investor-owned utilities and have community representatives govern it? Um, we, we can we can take our economy back, Eleanor. Right. I, I Those are fantastic examples, Marjorie. And uh, I'm very excited to learn about that company, uh, the billion-dollar company that does the the waste and the recycling. Um, and I'm I'm kind of wondering that a billion dollars is a big deal. You're not talking because sometimes you hear about these you know little co-ops and you go, well, that's nice, but we've got this giant economy, and what difference is that one little uh, small company going to do? But you're talking about a billion dollar company how do we how do we bring that kind of a model to a bigger scale when you've got exxon and the food companies and sure, you sure. know these giant companies how do, how do we bring those to scale and encourage that kind of more shared prosperity more building of community wealth Yes, this is a great question, and it's one that I asked myself at the Democracy Collaborative. How can we take employee ownership to scale? Uh, and we we started an, uh, an initiative to, to look at that. And you need more awareness of employee ownership, and you need capital. You need, in particular, active capital that's going to go out and buy firms and then convert them to employee ownership. So there's, there's you know, about a dozen at least a dozen funds that have formed to do this. We helped uh, to design the Fund for Employee Ownership at the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland. And this is, uh, I mean, startups are a hard way to go, right? You could start worker-owned businesses, but it's easier to buy existing companies and convert them to worker ownership. This is what the field has realized over the years. And so this Fund for Employee Ownership, I think it's bought five companies now, five local companies in Cleveland, and it's bringing them into the worker-owned network. One of my favorites is, uh, of these funds is uh, A&H, um, uh, Appis and Heritage. This is a fund that was created in particular to benefit workers of color. And the way that they do it is um, they target industries that employ primarily people of color. For example, this fund bought a, uh, I believe it was a gardening, uh, a, a gardening company uh, that employed um, um, primarily Hispanic workers, and they're converting that to employee ownership. So, mm -hmm. and there is a bill that has been introduced to say, we need small business administration type loan guarantees that would back mm -hmm. these funds so that they can attract more private capital and go out and buy more companies and convert them to worker ownership. So we could scale this $100 billion in SBA loan guarantees, and you could you could double the number of worker owners in, in a decade. Um, this is what Dick May of American Working Capital has, has calculated. So we could do this, you know, in the same way that mm -hmm. at one point we said workers should be, I mean, not workers, Americans should be able to own their own homes. And we created Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac mm -hmm. to, to, to backstop mortgage loans and make them more accessible. We could do the same thing with employee ownership. I love that. Uh, I've never heard that explained so succinctly. And it's just so reasonable to do. Um, and is this also, it seems like the kind of thing the current administration would probably look favorable on if they could get it done. Um, is it also the kind of thing that um, a, a governor could do or a mayor? Um, Absolutely. What's the role here? Like at what scale couldn't we start this at some cities? Yes, well, we could certainly do it at the state level. Colorado has, mm -hmm. is, is the governor there is really behind employee ownership, and he is backing it in a variety of ways, letting people know. Uh, I think that they have a, a loan fund and so forth. Um, and and um, cities could do this in a variety of ways. Uh, New York created a program where they uh, they had a hotline. If you want to sell your company, you know, call this hotline and we'll tell you how how to connect with employee ownership uh, representatives who can help you make that transition. So yes, cities cities can get involved too. Mm -hmm. And I I love the whole employee stock ownership 
model. It, I became aware of it in the 1970s, I think. And um, I was, I, I think it's got a great potential that you have the people who work in a company actually also be the owners of the company. And by the way, that's being done in Tacoma Park, Maryland. There's um, a woman who I think she owned 22 Ace Hardware stores and she's turning them to employee-owned companies. So, you know, it it can happen. Um, I was disturbed to find out that the trend is actually, I think, down. Is it not? Like there's fewer employee-owned companies now. And it seems like there's a huge opportunity. We got 10,000 people a day turning 65 and kind of looking down the road mm-hmm. towards retirement. All those people heading towards retirement who own their own companies they would be like ripe uh, to possibly at least consider, right. you know, turning that company over to be owned by their workers who helped to build the company. And I know a lot of families who have family-owned businesses and the children don't want to go into that business or they may not have children uh, or, or the family doesn't get along and they don't want to be working together. So, it's like it could be a solution to so many problems. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's referred to often as the silver tsunami, right? You have baby boom entrepreneurs are retiring en masse and needing to sell their businesses. Many of them will close. They'll they'll fail to find a buyer. Very few will pass them to children, not not many. And some will sell to a competitor, a big a big corporation, and that's how we get monopoly and and, and, and concentration because the big companies buy up everything. But you could sell to workers. And so, yes, it's a way for the founders and the, and the, and the owners to realize the wealth that they've created. There are tax incentives that incentivize this and make it uh, uh, feasible for the owners and make it easier for the owners. Ronald Reagan was a huge fan of, of worker ownership, and he put many of these tax incentives in place and there are uh, employee ownership centers now i believe in about 20 different states around the country there's lots of help for uh, for exiting owners who who would like to do this and uh, and there are, and there's money to be made for investors as well i we wrote about a uh, place in canada it was called taylor guitars and uh, there was a large canadian pension fund that financed the sale of this company to its workers. It was a, a very large transaction, something on the order of $100 million. And the, the pension fund was was excited about this because it was it was perfect for their retirees. It was, you know, stable income over many years. It was great for the workers. So over and then the owners, of course, got to realize the value they built. So um it is feasible. It's remarkable to me how feasible it is and how, how we really could make this a reality on a large scale. Absolutely. And uh, so if we've got someone listening who's either owns a business or a, a governor listening, um, what what can, like, where do they go? Like, is there a website or do they go to your democracy collaborative? Where do they turn? We have a lot of information at 50by50.org. That was our initiative to grow employee ownership. You'll find a lot of stories there, including Taylor Guitars. You can also go to the National Center for Employee Ownership. This is really uh, a bit, uh, an organization that's in the business of helping founders figure out how to sell their, their company. So that'd be a great place to turn. That sounds great. And and that you talk about tax incentives for it we can uh, do that nationally the governor could do it with the state legislature at the state level can a city do it could a mayor do it well i think what a, what a city uh could do is um uh use uh, perhaps its existing uh lending facilities and and help facilitate transactions of employee-owned firms. I know there was one city that wanted to experiment with going out to all, all, all retiring founders and saying, have you considered selling selling your company? Mm-hmm. We'd be interested in buying it. And they, and they were going to put together a fund 
uh, with local investors, big insurance company was interested in investing. Um, I, I haven't heard if this is still a going concern, but it, it could be done. Um, or cities could partner with other funds, somebody else who's already running a fund and say, let's just partner with you and we'll just let we'll just let exiting owners know. Uh, and there's a group called Project Equity that is working with a variety of cities that are trying to uh, advance employee ownership. So they have a number of models of how of how to do this. Project Equity, that's a, a good organization. Fantastic. And if you were talking, uh, if you had five minutes with President Biden, uh, what would you say to him are the top three things you think he needs to do about our economy to make this work for more people? He's genuinely committed to building the economy from the middle class out. Uh, what is and he's done a huge amount in his time in office what are the top three things you would recommend that the president do to help democratize the economy uh the, the first thing i would say is let's make community wealth building the premier form of local economic development biden has taken a step toward this he's put community wealth building into his economic development plan let's make that uh, more concerted perhaps there's a center for community wealth building that well, can take this model out to cities across the country or funding for that so that's the first thing i would do community wealth building and economic development the second thing i would say is let's support transitions to employee ownership let's make workers owning their firm part of the american dream in the same way that americans owning their own home is part of the american dream let's put some sba type loan guarantees behind funds that can, will buy and convert funds to employee ownership that's the second thing that i would say and, and the third thing i would say is let's loosen up local investing so many of us if, if we're fortunate enough to have a, an investment portfolio, we're sending all of our money to Wall Street. We're all investing in in Google and a Amazon, and and, and uh, we can't invest. We cannot invest into the this the businesses right next door because the mechanisms aren't there. So let's enable more local investing. Uh, those are the three things that I would say. And let me add a fourth, <laughs> Eleanor, if I can cheat a little bit here. <laughs> let's rein in private equity. Because mm -hmm. while we build the positive, we also have to stop the extraction by, and, and private equity is, is the poster child for massive extraction. And, I, and Elizabeth Warren has created legislation that would rein in uh, private equity. So let's, let's do that at the same time. That sounds like a great program. And um, let's pursue that. I think all of that seems eminently doable and i think it gets at the structural issue we're facing which is the concentrated ownership of wealth by the top one percent and even we talk now about uh, a good number of americans might own some stock and mm -hmm. most people have gotten the advice by a stock index the s p 500 just track track that and put it in there but um you know, we know that, I don't know the exact numbers, but huge amounts of the stock are owned by the top 1%. So there's only so much going around there. But why do we need to be putting our money into this whole extractive economy? I have a socially responsible sieve on mine. I won't put it into the fossil fuel industry or the weapons mm -hmm. uh, industry. Um so I got that far, but I think the next stage, and I know you, by the way, know more about socially responsible investing than anybody I know, but I think the next stage is to not put your money in the index funds, in the S&P 500 index funds, that we shift the money from Wall Street to Main Street, That's that we right. set up funds right. like an S&P 500 index fund, but it's a Wall Street to Main Street index fund. We, why, you know, I, I'd love to have uh, investment in this Ace Hardware store where the local workers are now taking it over. I'd be happy to help finance them. Of exactly. course, I need some return on that, but I think Main Street uh, companies, I think 
can do pretty well. So what do we have so far? Is there a way someone like me could put in or what kind of mechanisms do we need to create index we, funds for Main Street? Sure. We, we need a lot more mechanisms. And the first thing that I would recommend is a wonderful publication by a friend of mine, Michael Schumann. It's called the Main Street Journal. And he regularly tracks uh, Main Street investing and, and what's what's being done there. People are working on things like a, a stock exchange for local investing or fun, funds for local investing. People have local investing clubs. Uh, often you can buy municipal bonds. Municipal bonds are a great way to uh, put money into local economies in, in a beneficial way. You know, it's more than we can get into here, Eleanor. I mean, I think we, the thing that I would say is take seriously the idea that you want to shift as much of your portfolio as you can to impact investing and local investing. Those are two, two phrases uh, to, to understand. And if your investment advisor doesn't know about it, then find a new investment advisor because there are people who do. And, and get serious about it and, and, and recognize it's not as easy as clicking uh, and sending some money to, to IBM. <laughs> Actually, the money doesn't even reach IBM. It just goes from one speculator to another. Um, but um, it, it takes a little more thought. And, and here's another thing I would say. Pretty much every community has a community development financial institution, CDFI. It's a terrible, it's a terrible name. <laughs> but there's a thousand of these, and they, they're financing institutions that exist to benefit their communities and benefit the disadvantaged. And they're very sophisticated. They know how to do it. Uh, there are virtually no losses with these. They have very sophisticated loan loss reserves and so on. Boston, for example, has Blue Hub which is uh, it's over over a billion dollars in assets. It's a very sophisticated group. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they did with the 2008 meltdown is they went out, uh, they created uh, what's called a, the Sun Initiative. Um, I think it was Saving Urban Communities, something like that, Saving Urban Neighborhoods. But anyway, the Sun Initiative, they went out and bought mortgages that, that were on the verge of foreclosure. They went to the bank and they negotiated down the principal by about 30% on average. And they put that mortgage back on the same home with the same homeowner at more affordable terms, right? Oh this, my God, I love these people. So this is like sophisticated people working for you rather than against you, right? This is what it means right. in a democratic economy. And, and th this has now expanded to 11 states. Uh, it's been so successful. That's what a democratic economy will can, can look like. That's fantastic. Well, you'll get those social entrepreneurs that are doing that out of Boston. I'm very proud of that, by the way. Boston's my hometown. <laughs> I was born in Boston. Um, so good for them for doing that. And you tell a very moving story in uh, in your book, Wealth Supremacy, about a man named Randy who lived in um, Spencer, Massachusetts, whose wife was diagnosed with parkinson's disease and the bills were piling up they were facing foreclosure on the house and then blue hub came in and did what you're talking about they bought the mortgage from the bank and then at a reduced rate and then held the mortgage back to the homeowner so he could stay in his own home imagine if we had mm -hmm. done that that's how we could have solved the, the entire 2008 crisis. Instead, we bailed out the big guys with the big banks, right. and we let homeowners sink and go underwater and lose and lose their homes. And and by the way, Eleanor, guess who is now buying those homes that went into foreclosure? It's private equity. So private right. equity is out there snapping up homes at discount mm -hmm. rates. They're bundling them for investors in the same way that they used to bundle. You know, Jay, uh, they used to, Goldman Sachs used to bungle, bundle mortgages, and we know that mm -hmm. nearly brought right. down. Countrywide home loans. <laughs> now now they're mess. bundling the homes themselves. The homes themselves are becoming the assets. And and um, it's, so in Cincinnati, one out of five homes are being bought by, by big capital. Um, and That's... so the port, and, and here's an example of how we can do something differently. The Port of Cincinnati, which is a, a, a financing institution run by the city, uh, and uh, they stepped in and they bought 200 homes in an auction from private equity. They said, we, we're tired of this extraction from our communities. 
And so they're going to mm -hmm. buy these homes. These homes, when they were owned by private equity, the, the way that they increase their profits is they raise the rents, they neglect the maintenance, and they do, uh, they do aggressive uh, uh, evictions, right? If you get behind, they're going to evict you quickly. So the city said, we're going to buy these 200 homes. We're going to keep rents stable. We're going to catch up on the uh, neglected maintenance. And we're going to train renters in how to become homeowners. So they're going to deliberately help people buy their own homes and, and keep that wealth local and keep that wealth in broad-based hands and not not in the extractive hands of private equity. And the way that they finance that, Eleanor, is they floated a bond. So the, the port, okay. port of Cincinnati. And this is the city of Cincinnati? The city of Cincinnati, one of its financing arms, um, issued wow. a bond. I think it was $15 million, something like that. So, you know, that's another example of how we and investors can play in these games. We can mm -hmm. take back our economy from big capital and, and keep that wealth in broad-based hands. Absolutely, what a great story. I did not know that about Cincinnati. And uh, you know, you mentioned in 2008, the big crash, which of course came about because these wizards of Wall Street had sliced and diced and done all these risky games and mortgages and, and the whole thing collapsed. It was on a house of cards. The whole thing collapsed, putting at risk the national and global economy. Uh, and instead of doing the kinds of things that you're talking about with the Blue Hub and rescuing and buying them less, lower, and then selling it back to the homeowner, it was, you know, the U.S. taxpayer bailed out the big guys. They got billions of dollars and uh, back to their own, their old tricks. In fact, there was it was a massive transfer of wealth and accelerated the transfer right. of wealth that was already happening up to the top 1%. Um, but it's interesting to me because when you say to people, uh, we need to transform our economy, they will almost immediately dismiss you and say, oh, well, that's too big, that's too hard, that'll mm -hmm. never happen, that'll cost too much, it won't work. But the reality is, as you point out in your great book, the current system is collapsing. And it right. keeps collapsing because it's built on this kind of phony economy that's disconnected from nature. It's exploiting the workers. It's taking massive risks. It's all these hedge funds that are slicing and dicing, and there's nothing behind it. And so then, boom, it collapses again, and then they turn to the American taxpayer. How many times do we have to bail out these wizards of Wall Street? We should stop propping up the the old system the way it's currently working and just create another system that's more oriented towards community wealth building and individual home ownership. And the example I love to tell people is remember, after World War II, we had Bretton Woods. And at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, there was kind of a redesigning the economy and say, okay, this is what the post-World War II economy is going to look like. So People, you can redesign an economy. This is not the hidden hand of God that's predetermined and how it's always been and always will be. Right. These are just rules that we put in place that we, the people, can change. And I'm so grateful that in your book, you've told us how we can change it. The reason the wealthier are getting wealthier is because the yeah. rules are rigged. They're biased in their favor. And, right. and once we see that, I, I think that this system will lose will lose legitimacy. And I think that, in fact, is our most powerful tool, is to withdraw legitimacy from this extractive economy. And I think the most important thing we need to do, Eleanor, is talk to each other about it, understand what's going on, understand that there is a different way of organizing any economy. Uh, there are so many brilliant visionaries who have figured these things out. Uh, and it is a superior economy. If 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 by superior, you mean something other than just a high stock price. <laughs> yes, and um, and I love in your book all the practical models you have because um, you're talking, for example, if you want to build community wealth, let's focus on municipal ownership of electric utilities. Let's focus on municipal ownership of water. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about city and state-owned banks. I mean, that way we can build true community wealth that strengthens the community 
and that you can still have private enterprise. You can also have private banks. If people want to go to the Bank of America, that's their choice. But why not have a bank for your city and a bank for yourself? North Dakota's had a bank in North Dakota for like 100 years, and it's been a tremendous asset to the people of North Dakota. Why don't we have a publicly owned bank in every state? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is great, Eleanor. I, I, I just I love hearing you talk hear you talk. <laughs> <laughs> well that's great and, and I love it. I'm gonna hold up your book. It's called Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. I think people who are anxious about what's happening today and trying to figure out What's the story behind the story? What's the root cause? What is driving companies like ExxonMobil to destroy the planet in the search of short-term profits? It's like, do these people, don't they have children? Do they have eyes to see? The planet is on fire because of what they're doing. So, and what we're seeing with your book, these are the structures and rules that they're playing by and they're doing what you would expect them to do given those rules, we need to just change the rules. And so the game is played in a different way. And I just love that you bring in uh, the reference to the seventh fire of Robin Mm -hmm. Kimmerer, who, by the way, I invited to the uh, Solution Summit, and she's sending greetings to to the Solution Summit coming up in November. Um, By the way, listeners, you go to Solutions Summit 2023, uh, dot com and you can find out all about it but um the native americans say this is the time of the seventh fire and would you would you like to share with our listeners what does it mean like what are the native people saying about this time of the seventh fire yes she she tells the story in her book braiding sweetgrass um she's native american and she she tells of the native prophecy of, of the time of the seventh fire when when people of the earth see that the path ahead forks, that there is there is one path that seems smooth, um, it's paved, but it sh- soon breaks into jagged shards. And there's another path which is alive with grass and is green and, and alive with 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 life. Um, and that we face a choice: which path will we take? And she says this is a time when uh, a sacred people will arise knowing that we have a shared new purpose. And I, I do see I do see that arising. And and what I also say, Eleanor, is I'm 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 discouraged to see that that the extractive economy, that that paved road that is breaking into jagged shards, is still so much larger and more powerful uh, than than I think the path of life and of, of green growth. But if we can withdraw legitimacy from that extractive system, then I believe we can, it will fall eventually, and we can choose the I other. agree. I think withdrawal of legitimacy from the unfair and dangerous extraction and uh, withdraw the subsidies. I mean, we are subsidizing with billions of dollars mm-hmm. this extractive, the ExxonMobil and the rest of the fossil fuel companies. Like, stop subsidizing the burning of the planet. Uh, That would be a very good place to start. And um, I think we we need to put our time, our money, our attention, our energy into focusing the country and the world that we want to live in. And what I found very moving about the time of the seventh fire is uh, the native... Americans talk about people emerging now who share a sacred purpose and they Mm -hmm. have a longing to live in a world with reverence for life. And that is the foundation, I believe, of a new economy, a new America and a new world is that reverence and respect for life. And um, so thank you for your work and which shows us a pathway for how we can uh, show reverence for life in the economy. And before we close, I just want to ask, how can people learn more about your work? 
The easiest way is to go to my book website. It's wealthsupremacy.org. And you can see there are uh, interviews and writings that I've done. And uh, that that's the easiest place to, to catch up. I would also say uh, go to democracycollaborative.org. That's the organization where I work and we're uh, out there trying to catalyze the democratic economy. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have. And people can also go Solution Summit 2023 to find out more about that. Um, Marjorie Kelly, I'm thrilled I finally met you after all these years. <laughs> Author of the great and important new book, Wealth Supremacy. Thank you so much for being with us today and for all your important work. Eleanor, thank you so much.